Southern California's beach culture takes on new meaning at this beautiful beach adjacent to the University of California Santa Barbara campus. Beachgoers include the usual surfers, sunbathers, and strollers. But they also include different kinds of visitors, marine biologists investigating intertidal species, oceanographers tracking offshore currents, ecologists exploring the intricacies of a saltwater lagoon, and a threatened species returning to a long-abandoned breeding ground. Welcome to the University of California Natural Reserve System's Coal Oil Point Reserve, where public access and environmental research, education, and restoration exist side by side. The UC Natural Reserve System was established in 1965 to protect endangered ecosystems for teaching, research, and public education. Today it includes 35 reserves throughout the state. Coal Oil Point is one of the smaller reserves in the system, but its location next to the UC Santa Barbara campus makes it ideal for teaching and student research. The 117-acre site also protects a surprising range of rare habitats, including coastal dunes with endangered vegetation, a rich intertidal zone, a seasonally flooded tidal lagoon, and a small salt marsh. Dr. Christina Sandoval is director of the reserve. With the help of local organizations and a small army of volunteers, she has made remarkable progress in protecting and restoring the land. My focus since I became manager has been to uh, want to take care of invasive species. There were four species that were taking over a large uh, number of acres, 25 acres of the reserve. These were pampas grass, ice plant, acacia and myoporum. So we now have most of these in control. They've been removed uh, of the reserve and we restored those areas. Um, the last two years I've been working a lot on a management plan. And uh, the focal point of this management plan is an access plan that determines where people can go and different levels of use for different zones of the reserve. Uh, when I came along, because we didn't have an active management, we didn't have fences and signs, nobody knew this was a reserve. And so researchers weren't doing research here because they didn't feel comfortable putting their equipment and plots in areas that could be vandalized. So the, the whole goal in doing this is to stimulate more research so they feel secure that they can do experiments here and the area will be protected. When Sandoval's teams remove invasive species from an area, they replant it with native species that will attract both wildlife and scientists. This requires a lot of plants, so Sandoval collects seeds from throughout the reserve, starts them in a small greenhouse, and raises the seedlings until they are ready to be reintroduced. So far, she has raised and reintroduced more than 5,000 native plants to the reserve. This is our greenhouse. That's where we grow the plants for our restoration projects. It's very important, I think, for us and for the reserves in general that we maintain our own genetic stocks because many research projects depend on that, depend on the native local populations to study. So if we do restoration projects, we want to make sure we're not bringing anything from outside. So we collect seeds out in the reserve and we propagate them here. I can show you, for example, this is a coastal buckwheat. 
Um, we have uh, sage. There's a tray of uh, coastal sage. We plant on the dunes. And uh, when the plants are about this big, we just go straight and plant it on the ground. I've been developing this minimum effort restoration method, which is we don't repot or anything. They go from the tubes straight into the ground. Um, we also have been growing plants for other projects around the reserve. Because the reserves have a political boundary, but projects that go on around the reserve can bring commercial seed stocks that would affect our reserve because pollinators would bring pollen from those restoration areas into the reserve. So when I know of any restoration project going on, I try to develop a cooperative agreement with those landowners. And we're now providing the plants for them because we can make sure that we collect it in the right place. Because we have the, m the most knowledge about the biology of the species that live here. Um, a private landowner that wants to do a native landscape, for example, won't know what belongs to here and where to collect seeds. So we help them and grow the plants for them and, and that way it helps us and it helps them. Sandoval also uses the reserve to re-establish endangered plants from unprotected areas of the coast. This is the Ventura Saltmarsh Milk Veg. There's a very interesting story about this plant. This plant was considered extinct in 1995. Then uh, they were doing a development in Oxnard and a biologist just walking by found a piece of this plant didn't know what it was. They took it to the Fish and Wildlife Service office and uh, another biologist came by and said, where did you find this? You know, this is the plant, the milk veg that is extinct. So they went back to the area and found about 50 plants. And the reason those 50 plants were there is because that area was a toxic waste dump site. So they put all sorts of oil sludge and stuff in the bottom and then covered with three foot of sand, three feet of sand. On that sand that they used to cover the oil sludge, there were dormant seeds of these extinct plants. So when they got moved around, they sprouted it. So then very quickly, they wanted to protect that area and uh, they needed more areas for it to grow because if something happened to that population, that would be it ag again, go extinct one more time. So then a Coal Point Reserve and Carpinteria Reserve received some seedlings of the plant uh, to do experiments and learn about them. And the plants did really well here. We have about 200 plants now at the reserve and I'm doing a number of different kinds of research. This kind of information will help Fish and Game and Fish and Wildlife to uh, propose plants to recover the species. I think that's an important function of the Natural Observe System as uh, resources of information to help agencies deal with these conservation issues. Conservation efforts at the reserve go far beyond restoring native plants. Dr. Sandoval and her colleagues have worked hard to reestablish Coal Oil Point as a breeding ground for the threatened Pacific Coast population of the western snowy plover. The plovers used to breed here and until 30 years ago when the, this area became a reserve, they stopped breeding because at the same time that it became a reserve, the area was open to the public and plovers can't handle too much trampling because they lay their eggs right on the beach. So as their nests start getting destroyed, they just stop breeding. We still had a good wintering population, about 100 individuals every winter, but we lost the breeding population.
The scientists suspected that heavy foot traffic from beachgoers and their pets had caused the tiny birds to stop breeding. Their first step was to set up an experiment to test their hypothesis. About three years ago, we started to do some research to find out uh, how much interaction there was going on between win uh, wintering plovers and people. We want to know if they were getting disturbed or not, because we had seen it in other beaches. Plovers that were getting disturbed, even during the winter time, they would even abandon the beach uh, for wintering. And we didn't want this to happen. This is a reserve after all. When the study revealed that people were disturbing the plovers on average every 30 minutes, the scientists developed an ambitious plan to reduce the rate of disturbances. Their hope was that the plovers would begin to breed again, though most experts thought this was highly unlikely. To, to protect the plovers, we had to do a number of different things. We uh, first start with a fence. We had to rope the area. But the beach is very unstable. We can't put a real fence. We can just have a, a rope around it. So it's what we call the symbolic fence. Together with it, we need to have a docent to help people understand and respect the fence and understand why we are doing this. Because just a rope can't be, keep people out if they don't want to. With the fence and docents protecting the upper dunes where the plovers prefer to breed and hatch their eggs, Sandoval knew there was one more crucial element, increasing public awareness. Thousands of people visit the beach every year, and she needed their support. And we started doing some educational signs and educational campaigns like um, uh, videos and uh, going to classes and talk about plovers, doing slideshows. The education component was really important for the success we have today. We measured the level of awareness of the public here. And in the beginning of the project, before we'd done anything, it was 2% of people could identify a plover. Uh, in fact, 60% did not know this area was a reserve. <laughs> and after all this education campaign, we increased the awareness level to 95%. So of all these people you see here today, 95% of them will know what a plover is and why we're doing this. So it was a very effective way to teach people. By rerouting foot traffic around the breeding areas and building public awareness, the team dramatically decreased interaction between plovers and humans. But they were still not sure if the birds would begin to breed again. At the time, I remember this was a crazy proposal because People said, nobody protects wintering plovers, they only protect breeding plovers, and you don't have any more breeding plovers. But thank God this is a reserve, and our mission is to do research and education. <clears throat> so it was the perfect scenario for us to try something completely new. And uh, it worked out really well to our surprise when we protected the wintering plovers, they started breeding here again, in less than a year after we protected their area. <clears throat> so what we learned, of that plovers were able to assess how much disturbance they had and that once we put the fence around and they weren't disturbed anymore, they were able to evaluate this is now a good breeding habitat. The results have been promising. In 2001, the first year of the program, two eggs were laid and one chick was fledged. In 2002, 21 eggs were laid and 14 chicks were fledged. In 2003, 39 chicks were fledged. The key of success here is, one, we have that opportunity through the natural reserve system 
to do novel things. You know, the university is a place where you come up with crazy ideas and creative ideas, and you can do it. You know, I, I had the, the means to do it. The other was this community. Um, we was talked with docents today that are just members of the community at large that embraced this program right away, and they were very devoted. We have now 50 docents that spend two hours a week of their time to come here and help us out. It's incredible how much support we got. The local chapter of the Audubon Society developed the docent training for the program and provides many of the volunteers. Additional docents come from the Environmental Studies program at UC Santa Barbara. I'm a sophomore here at UCSB and I just recently got involved in the Snowy Pullover Docent program earlier this quarter. Um, I've been volunteering for about two months now. I'm an environmental studies major and they made an announcement in one of my classes and it just, I was very inspired by the fact that it's a successful like restoration effort. The species has like made tremendous progress in just this small amount of time so just hearing about how successful the program was so quickly made me excited to be a part of it. The public reacts generally very positively when I talk to them. I was just approached today of um, a man had seen some reserves like this elsewhere and asked me questions about this one and that was very positive and earlier I also had to ask someone to move away and usually if you're just smiling and you explain what's going on people cooperate and it's good. Learning about the environment you learn a lot about what needs to be done and it's good to come out here and be able to do it. While plover research occupies the upper dunes another group of scientists focuses on the reserves intertidal zone their project is called PISCO, Partnership for Interdisciplinary Studies of Coastal Oceans. Dr. Carol Blanchett is a PISCO Science Coordinator. Well, the PISCO project is essentially trying to link uh, the dynamics of nearshore oceanography with nearshore populations, so subtidal and intertidal communities, and trying to figure out whether or not uh, organisms in these communities, how tightly linked they are to the um, oceanographic environment. Until recently, oceanographers who study the physical attributes of the ocean and marine biologists who study life in the ocean seldom work together. PISCO, which includes scientists from both UC Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, Stanford, and Oregon State Universities, has changed that. I'll give you a couple examples of the things that we're trying to understand. Um, one of them is what are the uh, factors driving recruitment or um, the settlement of larval organisms at a particular site in a particular place. So um, one thing that you might see out here are these uh, collectors in the intertidal. And these collectors are things like um, tuffy scrubbing plaids or plates. And on these collectors, we count the number of organisms that settle on that plate over time. For example, barnacles on a plate. Um, and we're trying to link the numbers of settling organisms at these sites with the offshore oceanography. So we're trying to understand how uh, currents and upwelling can influence where these larval organisms go. Because the organisms you see on the shore are really the adults and all their babies are swimming around in the ocean. So it's really the currents and the upwelling and a lot of uh, features of the oceanographic environment that bring them to shore. California is currently establishing marine reserves to protect the nearshore ocean environment. PISCO's research will provide crucial scientific evidence for deciding where these reserves should be located. What's really crucial 
for understanding how marine reserves will work is understanding these connections between the ocean and the near shore. So if you want to protect the uh, spawning aggregation of some population, if you want to keep that population viable over time, it's important to know how many of their young of that species are coming into that area and whether or not that's tied to particular aspects of the oceanography. Is that tied to temperature, currents, and so forth? And so we're trying to understand those connections in an effort to make wiser decisions about where we put these reserves. PISCO researchers work at a number of UC reserves along the California coast. But the Coal Oil Point site is especially important for the UC Santa Barbara team. Coal Oil Point is important for a number of reasons. Uh, one is it's part of the UC Natural Reserve System. And so it's a place where uh, research is both encouraged and protected, and there's education. One thing about working in a reserve is it's an environment where people are used to having um, uh, things going on out there. So research, and people in general that come out to Colwell Point are curious about what we're doing and are actually interested in understanding um, what we're finding out about, uh, about that environment. Um, and the location of Coal Oil Point is important for us because it's um, obviously very close to our campus at UCSB. Um, so we're able to involve a lot of undergraduate students in the research. Um, they can come out relatively uh, readily. Um, our research uh, experiments, uh, we feel, are well protected out here because it is a reserve. So um, I think people are a little bit more careful about not tampering with uh, some of the experimental things we put out. Um, and finally, uh, it's a site that's right in the middle of the Santa Barbara Channel, so it's a, a very good location for a lot of the things we're interested in. We're interested in looking at um, processes of upwelling and biogeography, um, and the location of Coal Oil Point uh, relative to Point Conception um, allows us to look at a gradient of upwelling from the Santa Barbara Channel up to Point Conception and towards the north where upwelling is a lot more extreme. An upwelling is a process in which cold, nutrient-rich water rises from the ocean depths to the surface. Pisco scientists are trying to get a broader perspective on processes that are happening all along the Pacific coast. Our focus at UCSB is on studying the area around Point Conception and around the Channel Islands. So uh, we have a number of sites at the Channel Islands and we have a number of sites ranging from Colel Point up around Point Conception. Um, these sites then link up with uh, sites along the central California coast that uh, UC Santa Cruz maintains. Um, and then further to the north, our northernmost sites are up on the coast of Oregon that are uh, run by the o OSU campus of Pisco. So we essentially see a continuum from uh, Colwell Point being the southernmost to Oregon being the northernmost. And along that continuum, we span really three very different oceanographic regimes. Uh, the regime down here, which is not dominated by upwelling, the central California coast, which is very strongly dominated by upwelling, and the Oregon coast, which is dominated by this upwelling relaxation. So it gives us a really good picture of how the communities are connected along this coast in these very different oceanographic regimes. Few of the surfers on the beach notice the metal pole on the bluff above them, but it's part of a regional radar system being used in a long-term scientific study. Ed Beckenbach is a graduate researcher with the Institute for Computational Earth System Science. 
using coal oil point to conduct a research on ocean currents and we do this using a radar system and so we have installed antennas out here that uh, look out across the ocean and uh, we use these antennas to look at surface currents and we get a real, a real time picture of what the surface currents look like at an interval of about an hour. With this equipment, the scientists have been monitoring the currents almost continuously for five years. The Santa Barbara Channel is a very interesting place to study for a number of different reasons. And mainly this is just because of its geography. It is located sort of at the northern point tip of Southern California. And if you look at a map, you'll see Point Conception, which really marks the boundary between Southern California and the Central Coast. The coast makes a very large bend right at Point Conception, and when it does, a lot of different physical phenomena occur. The currents that enter the channel um, are very different. There are warm currents from the south, there are cold currents from the north, and they interact right here in the Santa Barbara Channel. And when this occurs, there's a lot of diversity in the physical environment, and that translates to a lot of diversity in the biological communities that are found here. So we have a very, very interesting biological and ecological system at work in the Santa Barbara Channel, and the currents that we observe in the channel are also interesting just based on how they, need, how they have to navigate through the channel and through the channel islands which make up its other boundary. Sailors have long recognized the strong currents that carom through the Santa Barbara Channel. The waves and winds can be relentless. So what we have here is a very strongly forced system with very strong currents that do a lot of interesting things. For instance, um, right here off of the coast, off of Coal Oil Point, we would be looking at a large underwater basin. And it just looks like a bowl. And on top of that bowl, there's a large cyclone. And this cyclone just spins around and around. It's very persistent. It's here almost all year. It uh, decays in the wintertime, but during the summer and the fall, it's very strong to the extent that if you were to throw a drifter out in the water in this current, it would go all the way around the Santa Barbara Basin and maybe come back to where it started in a matter of two or three days. So there's a lot of energy in the system, fast currents, and things are moving around quite a lot. The coal oil point installation is part of a network that allows scientists to track currents along much of the Southern California coast. We, we have two antennas here at Coal Oil Point. And one of these antennas is a transmitting antenna and one is a receiving antenna. You need both in order to make measurements. However, one system of antennas is never enough because all these antennas will tell you is how fast the currents are either approaching the antennas or uh, moving away from the antennas. What we want to know is what direction the currents are going in an absolute sense. And this is possible if we have multiple sets of antennas uh, lined up along the, the coast because with more than one antenna we can triangulate and find out what the actual current direction is. And so we have a system that in the past has had up to five sets of antennas and so with this entire network, we can see a very large portion of the ocean. Um, I believe we're looking at about 
2,000 square kilometers of ocean and covering the entire region from within the Santa Barbara Channel all the way around Point Conception up to the southernmost parts of the central coast. Discovering how currents travel through the channel at different times of the year will help deepen our understanding of everything that goes on in the nearshore environment. The impact of the currents on the biology in the Santa Barbara Channel is an intense area of investigation because it's something that's not really well understood in the Santa Barbara Channel or anywhere else for that matter. What we do know is that many marine organisms that live in intertidal zones, for instance, have a portion of their life cycle that they spend as plankton, just floating around in the ocean, some of which can't even swim. And so they're at the mercy of the currents to get from one place to another. So from the time they are released into the currents until the time they find a new home somewhere else in the intertidal zone, their motion is completely determined by the currents. And so by understanding the currents, we hope to be able to understand how organisms disperse into the environment and then recruit back to locations where they fulfill the rest of their lives. Compared to the wild ocean currents that sweep along the coast, Devereaux Slough looks serene. But the slough itself goes through dramatic changes during the year. At times it is open to the ocean's tides. At other times the dunes block it off from the ocean and it fills with fresh water runoff. Then, during the summer, the water evaporates, leaving a muddy salt flat. Dr. Kevin Lafferty of the U.S. Geological Survey focuses his research on salt marsh ecosystems. What we're trying to do is figure out, firstly, how the ecosystem functions, and then ask the question, what's the role that parasites play? So we study all aspects of, of uh, the community, from the plants, then the uh, invertebrates, and the fishes, and the birds, and then we look at how parasites affect each component of that uh, ecosystem to understand if we took the parasites out, how would things be different? Dr. Lafferty's research actually spans two UC natural reserves, Coal Oil Point and the Carpinteria Salt Marsh Reserve, located 20 miles to the south. The main difference for Carpinteria is it's open to the tides every day. And that brings a, uh, a much greater diversity of invertebrates, uh, snails and clams and crabs and so forth. Uh, Devereux closes up over the summer, naturally. And so although it has a very similar bird and fish fauna, the invertebrates are different because they can't tolerate um, the type of salinity regime that Devereux Slough has. Makes for an excellent comparison between those two reserves for us. Devereux Slough lacks the hosts parasites need to complete their life cycle. By comparing its non-parasitized fish to the parasitized fish at Carpinteria, Lafferty has discovered that the infected fish are ten times more likely to be eaten by birds. Such comparative studies would be almost impossible outside of the reserve's protected environment. Uh, we do our research at Coal Point and Carpinteria Salt Marsh and as well as other estuaries up and down the coast, but one of the reasons we focus on the reserves is because we can do manipulative experiments there and also because the systems are relatively intact. The 35 reserves in the University of California natural reserve system vary dramatically. Some span thousands of acres while others are much smaller. But whatever their size, these sites offer scientists and students unique opportunities to conduct long-term studies that deepen our understanding of the natural world.
Thanks to the dedication of its staff and the support of the university, sites like Coal Oil Point will continue serving this role far into the future.